Have you ever wondered if intergenerational trauma might be blocking you from true happiness? Have your parents and grandparents left you unintentionally broken? What exactly is intergenerational trauma? In this episode, find those answers and what it takes to cut the head off the snake to heal mind, body, and soul. This is your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. Michael Shu is a holistic healer that's going to show us how and why intergenerational trauma has an effect on our lives today by taking me through a step-by-step session revealing deep, buried traumas that have been holding me back. Welcome to the show, Michael. Let's have a conversation. Let's start with how did you discover this methodology? A lot of what I share with clients and with uh, my audience is uh, is coming out of my personal healing and transformation. And it's all about healing anxiety, anger, depression from the ground up. And the reason why it's so hard for us to really get rid of these negative emotions, why they always stay stuck, is because there's this missing core link, and that is intergenerational healing. And what we will talk about later on is like we are living in the movies of others, of our past family members. So that's a lot of um, what I do is going to the core of the core so you can have changes for, for life. So when you when you talk about intergenerational, then that aspect is uh, basically bringing forth from your ancestors, from some of your trauma, uh, from your parents, their their childhood, or your grandparents, your great grandparents, your uncles, your aunts. Something happened, um, and it carries through the generations. So, for example, um, like when when I had. I have a newborn son. He's five months old, right, right before he was born until he was two months. I had terrible, it triggered terrible insomnia. I'd wake, I'd sleep for three or four hours a day and I'd wake up, change a diaper or go to the restroom and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I feared like if this keeps on happening, I will eventually die. He was born in Czech Republic because my wife has uh, healthcare due to her citizenship there. And so two months, uh, when he was two months, uh, we came back to the U.S. I had um, my parents pick me up. We had dinner that same night and we were sharing stories, how we raised our newborn, how they raised me as a newborn. And I found out for the first time that my mother never took care of me at night because she was scared. If she was woken up by me, she wouldn't be able to go back to sleep. She, she's so scared of death. She fixates on health and safety, but because she fears death, it's, it's so obsessive. Um, the house that she lives in, it's a really nice neighborhood, but the windows are all barred up. She has an alarm system, a surveillance system, um, and her bedroom, okay, the window, her bedroom has um, a lock, an indoor chain, and she puts a chair against the door handle just in case somebody comes in. So it's really that that fear. And I was like, when I heard that story, I was like, oh, wow. I in, I felt her pain, her trauma, and I re, as a newborn, and I repeated it when I had my own newborn. And I began to sleep better because of that, there's something else underneath all this. We're like, where does this her fear of death come from? That's something else. But 
just knowing that I was like, wow, because I'm highly sensitive. You know, one out of five people are highly sensitive, highly empathic. They can feel the negative emotions of others, anxiety, anger, depression, sad. like the person doesn't have to say that they're depressed, say that they're angry, but they can pick up and feel on. So I just took that on. I, I can relate to that. I myself am very empathic. Um, I'm very sensitive. So is our oldest daughter. Um, we usually tell when somebody's feeling bad, depressed, angry, upset, you can, it's just a feeling. So let's, yeah, I understand that. Do you want me, do you want me to talk about where this is all coming from or do you want to? No, if you can please expand upon a little bit about that. I, I'm interested in knowing, um, this, I've never heard of intergenerational healing before. Healing. So it's like you, you, you first got to like in the very beginning, because we're so fixated on problems that are bothering us. So fixated on negative emotions anxiety, anger, depression, but it's important to center ourselves with this mantra. And we tell ourselves problem, bring up feelings in us that existed before the problem ever happened. Now, when you start exploring that with somebody, whether within yourself or with somebody else, um, are there, how do you recognize it? How do you know that, that you have this? Because a lot of people don't really understand that some of their trauma, for example, comes from that. Both my parents were alcoholics, for example. I grew up in an alcoholic environment. So as a child, I was aware of it. I was a middle child. Um, as an adult, I was aware of it, and I'm cognitive of it. But my brother's in a different situation. So he, he still kind of lives it every day. And um, I know that he experiences every day. So. Can people, do they, do they, do they? How do they get to that awareness, right? Thank you. Yeah. So, but the, the first step is because they're not thinking about that. The, you got step by step. I created a process called for emotional strength called the FIST process. First step is feeling. Feeling is healing. We're always thinking, thinking, overthinking. And the thinking mind will give this illusion. And the illusion is, but the, the what will dispel the illusion is that, that mantra. Problems bring up feelings in us that existed before the problem ever happened. The thinking mind will say, if you fi- it is the problem causing you the negative emotion, negative feeling. So therefore, if you fix the problem, you will fix the feeling. But the feeling preceded the problem. So even if you fix the problem, the core issue, which is that core negative feeling, still exists is going to say something negative about you. But we have to remind ourselves that they're just weeds. They're not true about who we really are. But we have to identify the feeling. It's going to say, it's, I call it cutting the head off the snake. It is it is controlling us and manipulating us with this illusion that the problem is causing the feeling, but the feeling is what precedes it. All of which, why do we focus on the problem? Why do we focus on anxiety, anger, depression? Because it helps us avoid feeling this core negative feeling, which may be feeling, may say something like, you're a failure, you're worthless, you're alone, you don't matter, and you, or you're powerless. Because the thing is, the sleep issue that I talked about, and it's still, after that incident, I slept a lot better, but it came up again. And I realized if I die, I will no longer exist. I will no longer exist. 
And the why does my mom fixate on health and safety? Because she fears death. She's like, she can I cannot have one conversation with her without her interjecting that, especially now with the thing about coronavirus and me having a child. She cannot stop talking about this. Not one conversation, even with the beauty of her child, a grandchild in front of her, she cannot help herself. It's almost like she's an addict to this fear and to this pain. But why does she so fixate on health and safety? Because she fears death. Why? Because she fears that she doesn't exist. And this is the intergenerational, intergenerational pain and trauma. So my, so my grandmother, okay, when she was five years old, her father found somebody who was prettier and educate, more educated. So he divorced my grandma's mother. Then she lived a life of poverty. She was severed from her first child, which was my grandmother. So she was outcasted, abandoned. Then my grandmother, who grew up in World, World War II in com- uh, communist China, fleeing for her life, escaping death, violence, murder, when she had to flee to uh, her father, because she was the, the stepmother did not want my grandmother part of the family because if she's a part of the family, then she's the stepmother. She's the second wife. No, she's the, she has to be the first wife. So she has to disregard her. So she's my grandmother raised by her grandparents, but this is wartime. She has to flee. She has to save her life. So she flees to her father's new home with the stepmother and his first reaction is disappointment. So with her life on the line, she, her life doesn't matter until this and, and for the for the my whole life that I've known her during family lunches and dinners she sits with her body facing outwardly because she feels like subconsciously she's not part of the family it's nothing that we do but it's just something that's ingrained in her and my and then she's she has this old school mentality so with my mother she my mother has a younger brother my grandmother would always favor her younger brother, always hug the younger brother and did not show that to my mother. So she felt like outcasted, abandoned. So this intergenerational pain and trauma of being abandoned, being outcasted, making you feel like worthless, like you don't exist. So that's why my mom, she feels this pain from my, internalizes this pain from my grandmother. But she does. She can't make sense of it because it's not her stuff. It's not. She's living in her mother's movie. So what does she do? She has to create a fear, which is death. Oh, if I don't sleep well, or something bad happens, somebody hurts me, um, or health and safety. If she dies, then she doesn't exist. She doesn't matter. But she fixates on that to avoid the underlying feeling, and that's what I inherited. So when I have sleep issues. It's like, oh, I fixate on death, 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 death. Oh, no, like, and I'm a holistic health practitioner. So I, I know I'm knowledgeable of this. So it's just, I get over, over into it. So, but knowing that that fear of death is, is rooted in a feeling like, well, if I die, I cease to exist. That changed the game for me. I sleep a whole lot better because of it. And you were able to recognize it from that perspective. So because of that, it allowed your body, your mind, and your soul to kind of come together. At least yeah. a little bit in that area. Yes. Okay, well, yes. That's, and, that's, and that's very important for anybody that needs to 
to kind of go through that. I think everybody has um, some kind of a trauma or some kind of uh, incident that took place in their past that has has to have an impact on their life today. Um, as a law enforcement officer for almost 17 years before I retired, I can tell you that um, everybody, everybody has something that they hold about their families and they bring forward from their past that they still hold on to. So uh, your program, I think, is a really good thing. You wanted to talk about uh, PTSD, post stre- uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so you wanted to talk about PTSD, post-traumatic. I don't know if you, we, I don't know if you're open to it, but would you like to apply the process to your parents? Well, both of them are deceased. Even if, even if they're not here physically, it's just an understanding. That would be interesting. Yes. No, I just, I, I don't want to. I want you to feel comfortable with it, but I'm just saying I'm for very, you to understand. Yeah, I'm very comfortable. It's okay. I've, I've, I've had, I've had, I'm at peace with myself, so I'm okay with just, that's the whole reason for my podcast. One more thing before you go is saying what you wanted to say, hearing what you wanted to hear before you didn't get the chance, or if you didn't get the opportunity, now's the time to talk about it. Okay. Okay. So, um, I, I do talk about with, to identify these core negative feelings, uh, to cut the head out of the snake. We, I use something called proof process P E W F. Okay. So, but before we begin, you want to first identify what emotions either you experience or if you're applying to somebody else, what they experience. So out of your parents, which one is more emotionally expressive? I guess it would be a combination. It's actually a combination of two things. Probably I was not, as a child, I felt like I was not important to the whole process. My parents believed more in partying and or uh, making sure they had enough alcohol in the house. If they had a party, we'd all get sent to the back patio kind of a thing to stay out of the way. That has a lot to do with it. I think that I didn't feel important enough. And that continued even after my parents divorced. And then my father died at a very early age. You know, my mother did not feel that I don't think I was important enough. So that, that's one one aspect of it. And, and just within your parents, within themselves, which one was more emotionally expressive as opposed to the one who is, suppresses their feelings and emotions more? I think they both pretty much held to themselves. They didn't really express a lot. You know, my mother very rarely told her, told me she loved me. Uh, my father probably did more than she did. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's just, if they're both uh, emotionally suppressive, then that's, you know, we don't need to pinpoint, but we can begin with your, I guess, with your father. So, or what's your, whichever, so out of like, uh, so say, for example, for your father, what emotions does he experience out of anxiety? And there's subcategories to this worry or fear. The second one, so there's three main negative emotions. The second one is 
anger or frustration. Frustration is just repressed anger and anger doesn't have to be violent. It's just an emotion and a feeling. The third one is depression, emotional suppression, just numbing and bottling and how you feel or sadness. So out of those three, which ones did your, did your dad experience? Um, I would say that I watched him experience all of those. He was a very depressed individual. He was very sad. He was very frustrated. He was angry at a situation. He was angry at my mother 90% of the time. He was angry at a situation where he couldn't stop drinking. Um, he kept losing his job, so he got depressed. Um, so, so it seemed like ang anger was the biggest one? Or was it anxiety? I would say anger and anxiety were pretty close to each other. Okay. So what problem or situation would bring up strong feelings of anxiety or anger in them? Financial. We at times didn't have enough money to be able to do what we wanted to do. We lost numerous homes, whether it be a house or apartment. So we were constantly having to move and or wonder where the rent was coming from. Got it. Got it. So, so that's, so with proof processes, P problem, E emotion. Now we got to identify that core negative feeling. But before we do that, we do the W, which is a worst fear, worst case scenario. So with this financial situation, bringing up anxiety or anger, what is his worst fear? If you stretch that, all the way to his worst fear, worst case scenario, what would that look like? His worst case scenario is that he would be homeless without any money. And not a, be able to provide for his family. And, correct, and not being able to provide for his family, which I unfortunately am that way today. Oh, that's the feeling or the situation that you're on today? Yes, I, I constantly worry about whether or not something's gonna be paid, if we've got enough money for something, I budget everything down to the penny. Oh, interesting, interesting. To identify these core negative feelings, we, we do the F, P-E-W-F, proof process. So F is feeling about the self. You wanna imagine if your worst fear came true, how would it make you feel or how would it make him feel about who he is or who you are? There are three common feelings that come up. And they, I call them FWP. These are just general guidelines. It's important to be specific by answering why. So FWP stands for, F stands for failure. Failure or failing others or letting others down. W is, comes in many different forms. It's worthless, but the subcategories is I'm alone. I don't matter. People don't care about me. I'm, I'm disrespected. The last one is P, powerless. And this comes in two different ways, but they're highly, highly related. One way is powerless is, is because we, as a fixer, because we feel immensely responsible for others. But because of this, we, we need to know that we cannot use our personal key to drive the vehicle of life for another. It's impossible. So we're going to try to be in control of what we're not in control of. So it's going to make us feel powerless. Also, just simply needing to be in control because we do that to combat the feeling of because we feel powerless.
you know, I have clients who tell me like, oh, you know, I need to be in control 100% in time. If I'm not in control at a, for a little moment, I freak out. So that's something. I can relate to that. And that's something I can actually relate to. Interesting. So with your father, if his worst fear came true that he lost all his income, became homeless, unable to provide, how would that make him feel the FWP and why? Well, I was a young, a young man, young, I was a teenager actually when he passed. So I have to think really hard on that because it's been uh, 40, over 45 years ago. In, in that regard, I think it made him feel worthless. I know that he did not feel respected in his industry. He was a journalist. And um, when he lost his last job in the newspaper business, it uh, made him feel worthless. And then when we lost our home, it made him feel more worthless because we lost our home and he couldn't provide for us. So did it, did the failure come up? Yeah. I thought he was a failure. He thought he was a failure, which is interesting. You know, I don't know that much about my grandparents on his side, so I can't tell you other than, you know, he was, I think two years old when his father died. So he had a stepfather for most of his life. And I knew the stepfather as my grandfather, but we didn't see them very often. So I can't, I can't give you a background on their relationship or what kind of. But for, uh, for the, like the first step or first half of this, the process is cause that's the, what you're doing is, is you're on the right path. It's like going even deeper, but for now, you just said something just earlier, just, oh, you know, you count everything to the penny. You worry about like, oh, I'm in the same situation. But you in, in, in that emotion and feeling of that the situation brings up, you just remind yourself that you're in your father's movie. When I say whose movie are you in, like we pull up our worst fears, our core negative feelings, and we ask ourselves, who else in my life feels this way? And whose movie am I in? And you, you said like, you are highly sensitive and highly empathic. And when, when people are like that, it's an amazing gift and ability, but we can subconsciously zap ourselves into somebody else's movie thinking it's our own. And no matter what we do, nothing ever changes, nothing ever works because it's not our movie. And just simply knowing that I say, I tell, you know, people like clients like SAM. Okay, so SAM stands for shit ain't mine. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that is definitely the international term for shit ain't mine. And of course, we have the PG version as well. <laughs> so stuff ain't mine. So like, because we're so like trapped in like, oh no, I like, I like, oh no, I didn't sleep well. I don't sleep well. Oh no, I'm getting more wrinkles. Oh no. I get dark circles. Oh no. Like, like, it's just like, oh, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then, but like shit ain't mine because I was like, oh my God, I'm living in my mother's movie, you know, creating something. So I don't deal with this feeling. I just, I'm just in her mother. It's just like, it's not mine, but it's not something I say to her. I'm not saying this to her. I'm saying this to myself. And we have to imagine there's this healthy line of separation between ourselves and for example, our parents. So even though we, we feel so much, we cannot 
feel so much to the point that we internalize their feelings and put in our personal space because that becomes our emotional kryptonite that'll break us down physically, emotionally, and mentally, and it'll make our life into a living nightmare. We have to separate from it. So that's shit ain't mine. Then we can no longer, we don't need to be an emotional sponge and we're a source of light. That's who we really are. That's how we really help others. So it's actually good for yourself and good for others that you do that. Well, and my, and my wife agrees with you. I can tell you now because she's always saying you are not your father. You are not your mother. And every time I worry about a roof over our head or whether or not my kids appreciate me or love me enough, she always says, you're, you're not your mother. You are not your father. You are you and you, we've never lost a home. We've always had a roof over our head. We've got money in the bank. We've got groceries in the pantry and, and my kids love me. You know what I mean? But I still fall into that old thing. Every time our bank account gets a little low, I worry about, well, should we go to the grocery store? Do I need to cut the list? But we really don't. I'm just curious, is, uh, and I know we haven't talked to your mother, about your mother, but we can explore this, is that, was there any past family trauma on your father's side of the family? So where this feel, this is because he's feeling this feeling when you're growing, when you grow up with him, that's what you can see. But his feeling is like rooted in some past family trauma, his, his upbringing, or maybe his parents, maybe even his his step, uh, his stepfather. It doesn't have to be biological parents. It could just be any primary caretaker. Was some like because, uh, for example, I'm not saying this is the case for right. you, but for example, I've heard clients tell me that their grandparents was this. The whole family was really very rich and wealthy, but that grandparent lost all the family's wealth, and then the family became poor because of it. And so the 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 client is like. They just feel like failure. They just need to earn back that money, but they're they're just they're just living and trying to heal or fix their somebody else's movie, their grandparents' movie. So, was there any past family trauma for like losing it all? Well, from my father's side, like I said, it, it's difficult for me to really know. In fact, I didn't even know who my my real grandfather was until about five years ago. And I didn't know that much about my step grandfather. I only had seen him like maybe four times in my whole life. Um, that part of it may become from my mother's side of the family because my mother is, she grew up poor. She grew up in West Virginia. Father worked for the coal mines and there was nine of them, nine, well, nine kids and, and uh, her parents were all in the same house. So they grew up very poor. We grew up very poor. So up until the time I left the house, it would be from both my parents' sides. And I know that my mother, my mother experienced, um, my mother experienced growing up poor. I mean, West Virginia poor. And I'm not trying to be detrimental to West Virginia because I was born there. So first and foremost, if any of our listeners, if any of our listeners are from West Virginia, um, it, no disrespect, but I can tell you that they grew up in a very, a very dirt poor environment. And I'd, I'd like to explore this, if it's okay with you, sure. is 
Um, but then like, uh, you know, I, I, I apply the process, but anytime you want to say something outside of it, feel free to do so. Um, but with your mother, what did she experience out of anxiety, anger, and depression? I think hers derived from several different things. Um, she was abused as a child. And um, I think in regard to her anxiety and depression, both, she was never actually happy her whole life, actually. I mean, she was married five times. So she was never really able to find somebody to settle down with for whatever reason. She also didn't talk her emotions out very much. So you would see she's depressed. You would see she's angry. But she would take it out in um, drinking. Now, later in life, before she passed away, she finally met an individual that she stayed with for 25 years. And he was my stepfather for 25 years. And he was a great guy. He also got her to stop drinking. So later in life, she became a better person. But a lot of her a lot of her anxiety and depression stayed with her even through there. And most of it was dealing with money, with whether or not she was going to be homeless. I mean, I think... So it's, so her, what, what would bring up feelings of anxiety, anger, depression was also financial? Financial with her. And then I think um, to make sure, because she'd been married five times, I think she was, the anxiety a lot was whether or not Burl was going to stay with her, whether or not she was good enough for Burl to stay with her. Which he was, obviously, because they stayed together for 25 years. Oh, she was uh, worried about people would leave her. Correct. Okay. Okay. So if you take her, these problems uh, or these fears, stretch it all the way to her worst fear, worst case scenario, what would that be? It would be two-factor, financial and abandonment. Got it. Got it. So financial is just to, to be homeless. I would say yes, because again, I grew up pretty dirt poor. Got it, got it. And if her worst fear came true, how would it make her feel the FWP and why? Failure, worthless, or powerless? So I, think it, I think failure and worthless are two primary factors in my mother's life whenever I've either watched her or discussed anything with her. Got it, got it. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, it's, it's, it's very interesting because you're coming from both sides. Um, but so with your mother's feeling of people leaving her, uh, aband- worthless because she's abandoned, failure because she's homeless, unable to make money or provide. Um, after, is there any past family trauma that this feeling could be coming from? I would think because she grew up in an environment with um, eight brothers and sisters, and she, I think, was the oldest. So as, as we all know, once you start having kids, the oldest is great in the beginning, and then the oldest kind of gets set aside and or gets put into a parental role over the other siblings. You know what I mean? So the other siblings mm-hmm. became more important as as they were born, all the way down to the youngest. I think she got kind of... And your mother was the oldest. My mother was the oldest. So she got kind of okay. put into a secondary parental role, babysitting, taking care of her younger brothers and sisters, et cetera, et cetera. But she, she didn't feel loved enough 
this she did tell me at one time that she didn't feel loved enough. And it might have been because of the situation that her family was in and or the fact that she had eight brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. what, what, what about her? Did you know her parents? I do know her parents. Um, I mean, what were they like? Uh, my grandparents on my mother's side were, they were very, they were stable. Um, from the time that I knew them, they were stable. I know that emotionally, what were they like? Emotional, they really didn't talk that much. You know, they were very to themselves. Um, we had family gatherings all the time, but most of the family gatherings, I think, were I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say a, a show, but I would say that they were family gatherings just because they moved out here shortly after my parents to Colorado. When I say here, I'm sorry. When they moved to Colorado shortly after we did, then we had family that all started moving to Colorado. So then we had the whole family were living in the same apartment complex at, at several times, actually, throughout my childhood. So we were always, always there. You could go to my grandmother if you were hungry. You could go to my grandmother if you, you needed something. But as for emotionally supportive, they, they really were kind of distant, I guess, a little bit. Same thing with my grandfather. He'd love to take you fishing. He was a hard worker. He didn't say much at all. See, he would sit there and smoke his pipe or he'd, you'd see him outside and he'd stand there watching everybody smoking his pipe. But you try talking to him and you wouldn't get much out of him. He, they were very, both of them were very close, yeah. you know, close within themselves, I guess. Because I'm, I'm wondering with your mother's feelings of the failure and, and being left, I just, I wonder if this, like in even more impactful event not just with her but with her parents or something within the family something major um that you know of where could the feeling what event what traumatic event or experience uh could that feeling come from i'm going to share something with the with the public that um some of my relatives may not appreciate it but my mother herself before she passed away had said that she um had been abused sexually as a child within within her home environment so she didn't go into great detail about it but she was coming to to grips with it closer um she ended up passing away in 2010 and she passed away of a heart attack but i know closer to that in the previous three or four years she had come to a realization and hadn't started seeing somebody in regard to that so it kind of came out a little bit that that at that time well she blocked it out of her memory and then the last three or four years of her life who that was came up well i don't know if she blocked it out of her memory i think it was something in the back of her mind her whole life i believe i think that's part of the reason she um started drinking um was to kind of suppress those memories so that they didn't come back up and again she didn't go into great detail but that's the did her parents know well according to her she had told her mother but her mother, my grandmother, told her that wasn't possible and pushed it aside. So, and as an investigator in the past, investigating those type of incidences, I know that that takes place, especially in older generations. So I believed her when she said that. It wasn't just something off the top of the, you know, off the wall. It was a legitimate statement based upon my previous experience in investigating things like that. But... She really didn't want to go into great detail with me. I think that's maybe a significant part of that, which is because the mother did not acknowledge 
her pain and her trauma. So she felt emotionally abandoned. I would agree with that. And I think that's probably why she continued to get married. So do you ever feel that feeling that other people are going to leave you? And they, yeah. yeah, I, I do. Um, I, there's been some times that, yes, I'm worried about whether or not my wife would leave me, but you know, I have to stop and think about it. And, and then I have to remember that, and she will tell me that that's not going to happen. Um, we're pretty stable now. I mean, we've been married for 30 years. We've been together for about 31, just under 31. Just the, because in, in, like, even if it doesn't make sense in your situation, in your life, like does the feeling, because I have people in stable, stable marriages, but that feeling will come up because it's, it's coming from that intergenerational uh, yeah. pain and trauma. And yes, it does come up and it has come up in the past. And, you know, um, it's come up to, uh, in the past to where we've actually spoken about it because she kind of noticed what he's, what's on your mind, what are you thinking? I, I don't, I'm not saying this is the case. I just, so I just want to explore this is that, um, what if, if not having money, tell me what is, if like, let's say that came true. Why is that so fearful, painful, traumatic to you or terrifying? Because I, although I have a roof over my head right now and I'm very grateful for that. Um, and if I have food on the table, which I'm very grateful for, but as I grew up, in my lifetime, I remember being locked out of places because back when I was a child and you get evicted, it was a matter of them putting a lock on your door, keeping everything you own and selling it to pay the rent. So even as a child, even though that wasn't my responsibility, I'd come home and there was a lock on the door. We couldn't get in. And then I just lost everything that I ever owned, which for a long while I was kind of hoarding stuff. I mean, I, I saved stuff for 30 years until I finally let go of it a few years ago. So I think from that perspective, it would be more so, and again, knowing realistically, I can say to you and to everybody else out there, I am not going to be homeless. I am not going to be without, but I'm always fearful for it. So when the bank account gets low, I start stressing. My wife be happy to tell you that I start stressing about it. And she says that it, you know, it, it is what it is. We've got money and we've got ability to do this. We've got ability to pay for something, but I still go through. And I guess, I guess in the back of my mind, I, I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to be without food on the table. I don't want to lose everything we have. And I, this is something I just want to explore. I wonder if, if you, because if because if you lose everything, if you become homeless, then you would feel this is a de- would feel alone. I would feel alone. I would feel like crap. I would feel uh, worthless. I'm wondering if there's a connection between the the finan- losing it all financially, becoming homeless, and the feel of the worthless feeling that your mother would feel. It because you know other people would leave her, but her mother was not emotionally did not support it in the most critical time in her pain and trauma. So I'm wondering is like without without if you lose it all, then you'll be literally alone. You wouldn't have an existence because you can't pay for anything. You you don't have a place to stay. It's like you're completely abandoned in a way. 
you're living a life of abandonment. And that makes sense, actually. It, it really does. I don't want to push this onto you. No, I, no, just, no, it, I just want to explore with you. Does this, uh, does this resonate? No, this does. It does. It's, it actually, it makes sense to me. The, the aspect, even though I, I mean, I've, I have had a, a good job all of my life and I made sure to, to keep it. And I made sure that without sounding rude to my parents, because I, I, even though I grew up the way I did, I still respect my parents. So in their journey. But I always grew up going, I don't want to be like my parents. That's the reason I said I will make sure that I'm a better father. I will make sure that I'm a better husband. I'll make sure that I'm a better person in regard to this. So I, I guess deep down, if I lost everything, it would still make me feel worthless. It would make me feel like I failed. It would make me feel that it was my responsibility to make sure that everything stays on the level it is right now. And if I don't accomplish that, then I'd be failing. Because I, I, I do experience the personal experience, the feeling of failure a lot. But I, I realize that like sometimes this is my personal example is just or stories is I fear that I'll be a fraud. Like, let's say, like if people see me like, oh man, he doesn't, he's not sleeping well. He looks really tired. How is he going to help me? Why is he trying to help everybody? He can't even help himself. So the people don't want to be around me. So it, it's just people leaving me. So it, and I, I wonder like underneath this feeling of failure is this feeling of non-existing. Cause like that's a traumatic, that traumatic event is she was sexually abused and her mother was not there for her. So she felt abandoned in that sense and we may she may gravitate fixate on the money because without money you won't have you won't be able to live your life you wouldn't be able to have an existence it would make you feel a a live abandoned life so there's there's it, we have the mind will create these because when we internalize other people's pain the mind or or tr to deal with trauma it'll create some type of fear to try to fix it all for example it's like i need i need a, my mom and i will fixate on health and safety to avoid death because but then death is really rooted in non-existing and feeling outcast and abandoned they, they're so far they seem like they're so far apart but the mind has to create something so because we don't know that we're living in somebody else's movie so we can't make the connection so we have to create something like that. So when you make a connection like that, like some of the realizations that obviously I spoke out loud now, how does somebody, how does, how does somebody learn to work through that? Because, you know, I practice meditation, but I do it from a perspective of um, pain management and in healing. And I've had five operations, so I've used meditation for pain management and healing. It helps me that way. So how does your program, what would you recommend that, how does somebody work through that to come up with a solution for themselves to let that go? To, uh, go through the, the process, but I, I, I shared stories, you know, go through the F I S T process. You identify your feelings through the poof process, P E W F. Um, 
worst fear, worst case scenario, how would it make you feel? You apply the same process to your parents. You realize that SAM, but then you, after that, the second part of separation is to see that that intergenerational healing, that past family trauma, because that's just going to the absolute, absolute root and then pulling it out because you, you cannot resolve a weight just by pulling it from the top. You know, you got to go all the way down to the root. So that's pulling it down to the root. After that, it's a daily practice because this trauma is ingrained in our system. We, it's, it's a part, it's like, it's like running through our blood. So we just, it's a daily practice. It's, it's, we make it as if it's the air that we breathe and we just focus on a moment to moment. So that's when, you know, people can, you know, they can join, like, um, do a private session with me or listen to my podcast, read my book or join the membership support group that I'm about to launch. So those are ways to really, really get to the detail, but in general, it's doing that process, identifying your core feelings, doing the same process, the poop process to your parents, and then going to that that root of that past family trauma. So <clears throat> this may sound like a very strange question, but in dealing with that and recognizing some of those um, feelings and some of those traumas, is it is it advisable or do you recommend, you know, I, again, I know that you would teach these things to people within your program, but, um, do you, would the people that are experiencing them confront their parents? Is that a positive thing or a negative thing? Setting healthy boundaries with your parents is you cannot change them. You cannot save them, but you, you say, you first do, I call a loving no. When they put their pain onto you, say, you know, you don't speak to the, the surface issue. They're like, oh, and my mom's like, focus on, watch out for this, something bad may happen. The core issue is that she feels like she doesn't exist and she's putting that into my personal space. So I speak to the core issue. It's a loving no. Um, but you don't, they, they're not going to change, you know. In, in many ways, like my mom is an addict and an addict to this fear, an addict to this trauma and the way that she avoids it and projects it onto the fear of death. So you really just got to do the work within yourself and create an impermeable barrier. Or it's just when things come in, they just slide right through. That's, you don't need to... You, when you confront them, you just create a healthy boundary, but it's not your job to save them or convince them. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, I know you wanted to talk about uh, PTSD. Do you do you have time? I mean, when I uh, when I was talking about PTSD, it was specifically about this past family oh, trauma. Past family trauma. Okay. And and the in the trauma is because normally we think of trauma as physical, sexual, or verbal abuse. But trauma has a wide, wide spectrum. And it's see when when that thing when those like what we know of as uh, abuse, I mean trauma, sexual, verbal, physical abuse, we know when it happens, we know that it's wrong. We know that it's wrong. This other trauma, living in somebody else's movie, we don't even know that it's happening. That is very, very painful because you have nothing to grasp onto. We create this hologram 
the hologram, my mom creates this hologram, this fear of death through fixating on health and safety. And I fixate on, am I sleeping well enough or not? And I, and the fear of death that comes from it. And it's a hologram. I try to grab the hologram. I try to break it. I try to resolve it. No matter what I do, every time I grab it, nothing changes. That is traumatic. That's something that we, and we live with this pain for the rest of our lives until we stop the intergenerational cycle of pain and trauma. That makes a lot of sense. So in actuality, PTSD can be suffered by, by us as an individual through our past generational lifetime and how it affects us today as an adult or a young, or a young adult. Yes, especially if you're highly sensitive and empathic. There was this interesting study done, revealed in this book called It Didn't Start With You. And the study that they revealed was they, it's like a scientific study. So I don't want people to take this literally, but it reveals a, a really amazing point. They took a group of male mice and they exposed them to a cherry scent. Every time they did so, they would give them electric shock. They did this so many times that once they gave the cherry scent without the electric shock, they already started to panic. Then they took the sperm of these male mice, impregnated female mice that ever never had any exposure to this male mice. These female mice had offspring. When the offspring were exposed to cherries, the cherry scent without an electric shock, they panicked. That goes, that goes deep down into your DNA. Yes. And then the offspring of this offspring, the third generation, when they were exposed to the cherry scent, they also panicked. Oh, that's amazing, actually. That's amazing. I mean, that's deep down. That goes into your DNA. That's, that's absolutely intergenerational. I think that people need to explore connecting with you. I think that you can open the doors for people to understand within themselves what their experiences as a child whether it be infant forward, because everybody knows that infants can still recognize, hear, listen, take in, understand what's going on in their environment and bring it forward with them as they grow and how to understand how to make yourself feel better, how to bring inner peace. Exactly. Because the, life isn't good if you don't have inner peace. It, you know, it took me a long time to understand, I, you know, I, as I said earlier, I, I was a law enforcement officer. I was injured in the line of duty. I spent years um, with anger and resentment and basically being pissed off, you know, it, it, of my situation, of the fact that my career got sidelined, of the fact that I was injured and I had to deal with that, how it affected my family. There was a lot of anger and resentment. I, that's where I started learning more about meditation and uh, balancing mind, body, and soul. And if you don't balance your mind, body, and soul, you can't have inner peace. Part of intergenerational trauma healing is a way to balance your mind, body, and soul. Would you agree? Exactly. To heal yourself from the ground up, from the root of it all. But tell me about your book. Uh, my book is called You Are... It's, it has playful cussing, but you are the fucking shit. Uh, heal your anxiety, anger, and depression from the ground up. So it details this process 
um, and he uses a lot of personal examples and inspired by client examples. I didn't use client examples, but just inspired by them and I created something so you can see different examples of what this uh, healing and process uh, looks like. And they can find that on Amazon, is that correct? Yes, yes, they can find that on Amazon. They can find that on your website, is that correct? Yeah. What is your website, please? Uh, website is healfromthegroundup.com. Everything is about going to the root of it all. Is there anything else that you would like to, you think is important that we didn't cover that you might want to tell our listeners about your process or your methodology? Uh, I mean, that was pretty much it in a nut- nutshell. Uh, I love people to uh, tune into my podcast. It's also called Heal from the Ground Up. And I really give it my all to, to, to speak from my soul and not hold anything back. Um, as well as a, I have a master class that really details this as well. And lastly, I have a, because once you know everything, you have to still apply it. And that is something is like going to the gym, brushing your teeth It's the air you breathe. It's a moment to moment practice and things keep on evolving, keep on learning, growing. It's not just, this is it. And then you're, you're okay. Um, you have to apply it. So I have a membership support group where you, where I have bi-monthly, uh, live workshops and it's just a supportive a private, you know, community where you support each other in the process. Cause that's really important. You're like, wow, I'm not alone here and you learn from other people's story and healing so much it's like everything has adds so much flavor because i see clients and I hear so many stories it's like a mind-boggling and that's what i sh- that's what i learned so much from it and and in this group you're going to learn from each other well it's a it's a it's a step towards the right direction and then a step becomes a commitment for life and a yes. commitment for life comes inner peace and mind body soul connection yes michael thank yes. you very much for the whole session i i really appreciate the time that you took and how you explained to me and how you let our listeners understand uh through talking with me how your process works and how positive it is because it sure opened my eyes and i'm going to get off of this episode and I'm going to be thinking and I'm going to be talking to my wife and my <laughs> sister and <laughs> you've opened a can of worms. <laughs> a good can of worms, I a hope. A good can of worms, absolutely. <laughs> so I appreciate your time and I'll put a, I'll put a link to your uh, website, your podcast and your book on the show notes and on my website at beforeyougopodcast.com. So again, Michael, thank you very much. I will talk to you soon. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. This is your host, Michael R. Hurst, signing off for this week. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. And one more thing before you go, have a nice day, have a nice week, and thanks for listening.
One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved. 